Welcome to Make Things That Matter, the podcast where we explore impactful products and the cultures that create them. I'm your host, Andrew Scottsko, and if I'm doing my job well, each episode of this show will help you to do meaningful work, make things that make things better, and have a great experience doing it. My guest in this episode is Melissa Perry. Melissa is the CEO of Products Labs, a global product management consultancy, and she's also the author of Escaping the Build Trap, which is one of my favorite books out there on product. She's the creator of the online school Product Institute, where she's shared her scientific approach to product management with over 3,500 students. Since 2019, she's also taught on the faculty of Harvard Business School in the MBA program. Now, in this conversation, we go deep on the missing middle layer of organizations. We talk a lot about how to create and maintain and build a differentiated product strategy, how to set that up with product operations, and frankly, how to assess whether or not you want or should want to work with a company, and so much more. Now, after you listen to this, I definitely recommend checking out Melissa's new podcast, which is called Product Thinking. She launched that just a little while after we recorded, and that's linked to below in the show notes. Without any further ado, please enjoy learning in this deep dive with Melissa Perry. Melissa, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. As I was getting ready for this conversation, I discovered there's a word that I think is very important to both of us that we may share. And that word is thriving. And I was curious, you know, you're someone who, if I understand right, is very obsessed with how do you create not only thriving product managers, but really thriving product teams and environments. And I think that's fantastic. But I'm just really curious, like, how did that come about for you? Like, that's such a specific thing. That's a good word, thriving. I, I don't think it's just about creating a product management organization, but creating one that actually allows people to do their jobs well and be happy and create great products. So yeah, I like that word. I like that word, thriving, especially as it relates to product management. Ooh, how did I get into this? So I guess I was a product manager. I was thriving in my organization. And when I left, I went to an organization where product management was not thriving. <laughs> and I found out <laughs> that that was pretty common. A lot of places did not have uh, the organization set up to really implement product management well or to give people the support that they needed to do their jobs. So I guess I started off... When I started off consulting, I was really driven by giving people the tools to do product management better. So I started with a lot of training, doing a lot of workshops, getting product managers to understand that you could experiment and use statistics and really try to quantify value. And I love mm. that. And as I kept training more and more people, I kept getting responses to from them going, Hey, you know, this is great, but I can't do it at my organization. Like we, we're not allowed yeah. to do this here. And that's really where I started taking a more of a holistic look at product management and trying to figure out how do you set it up systemically throughout an organization so that people can do their jobs and they can create great products and everything works together really well. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's a wonderful pivot point into what, if I understand, based on your experience, is what you see is kind of the missing link, which is, I think you like to call it the missing middle. Yeah, that's it. So talk to me about the missing middle. What is the missing middle and why is it missing? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny because it's talk about how do people approach product management transformation. So what typically happens, and this is usually what happens in all these organizations, is that they go, hey, we need to create better products, ship things faster, do all this stuff. Hey, let's do Agile. So then they implement Agile. And then they go, mm -hmm. okay, I guess we need this thing called a product manager. And then they implement this product manager, product owner role. And then they train them just to like manage backlogs. And then they go one day, oh, that's not enough. Let's train them in product management. And then that's usually where I would come in. And then the next step for them to look at is like, okay, well, let's set up the systems or the data around it so that they can get the information they need. 
And the thing that everybody almost always neglects is product strategy. And that to me is the most important thing you can do to create a robust product management organization. But the problem with product strategy is it takes a lot of leadership work. And the leaders usually see this as like, oh, okay, that's like a team thing, not a me thing when I implement product Mm -hmm. strategy or product, sorry, product management. They certainly see strategy as their thing, but they see product management as like, oh, that happens on teams. That's not me. Yeah, that's so, a like tactical thing down in the yeah. weeds. Like, that's not what I do. Exactly, exactly. So they're like, that's not my job. So what happens is we usually have like a big vision for the company of where we want to go. The product managers have a roadmap and a backlog of all the things they're going to build. And there's nothing to connect it. There's nothing that says, hey, we believe that by doing these big things, solving these really big problems, going this direction, entering this market, we believe that that will get us to the vision. And then that's what this means tactically for the teams. So that's what the missing middle is. It's this glue that kind of connects the really lofty vision and business outcomes back to what the team should be doing. And it's not just these small little projects of build this feature or fix onboarding. It's, it, it's what connects all those projects back to a higher level goal that produces a significant outcome. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it seems to be, it's like the, it's the link, it's a like strategic link between that you know, pie in the sky vision and also what are we doing day to day? I'm sure this is what you've seen. It's certainly what I've seen in some of the, some of the folks that I've, uh, I've mentored in, in other organizations. It's like everyone's running around. Everyone's super busy, but no one's exactly sure where they're going and why. Exactly. And this is what you see. Like everybody's in motion. It's, it's like, how do we get fingers going faster on keyboards? How do we get more products out the door? How do we get more features out there? And then when you look at it from a business level, you're like, cool, what did we do last year? Like everybody was so busy. They were working 80 hours a week. But like, what does that mean? What what did that produce? And it's hard to draw those outcomes. And when I see that, when I see so much motion and so many deadlines and everybody freaking out, what I typically do is like go up the ladder and start asking, okay, what is that supposed to achieve? What's that supposed to achieve? And all the way up to the CEO. And it's really interesting because sometimes you don't get an answer on that. Or sometimes you get answers that are very different. Um, mm-hmm. from what the teams are saying to what the leaders are saying. And it's not that they're talking in different words or getting to a bigger why. It's that they're completely disconnected. And that usually is what's causing so much swirl at the team level and everybody running around, but nothing actually getting done. Absolutely. As I was thinking about this the other day, getting getting ready for this conversation, it occurred to me, and this in retrospect to me feels like one of those really obvious things. But at the same time, it was an aha when I was listening to one one of your talks. And it's this idea that I think you're getting at, which is that strategic clarity is actually seems to actually be the missing key to unlocking all of the autonomy and the creative experimentation, like all the stuff that frankly everybody wants. And we all, we all have some sense of what it looks like down at like the team level, the tactical level. And it seems like maybe what's really missing is the enabling strategic context that sets up that kind of, that kind of work. Yeah. I think that's really it. You can't just have people experiment without any bounds around what they're experimenting around. But I do see that. I see organizations that are like, hey, let's let's put in experimental teams. And then they just give direction to teams to experiment. And then they go, oh, well, that didn't work. We we shouldn't use experimentation. We shouldn't do MVPs. And you're like, no, but you gave them no context. Like you didn't give them a direction on what you wanted them to achieve. And that's important. Like if you're, if you just have everybody moving in different directions or trying different things, there's no alignment to actually reach your goals. So I believe that having a good strategic framework, and I've seen it in practice, you as an executive, if you want something, if you want somebody to achieve a goal, you have to point them in the right direction towards that goal and also tell them what it is. Otherwise, you're going to get 
just a hodgepodge of things. And it takes a while Mm -hmm. to figure out what that goal is. And that's the work that we really need to do at the leadership level is figure out, all right, you know, it's, it's like asking a series of questions where you go, all right, what is my vision? How is it differentiated from competitors? I think that's a big one too. I hear a lot of, a lot of visions that are like, Hey, I want to be the best company. So does everybody What's else. Mean? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You're welcome, like, to the, welcome to the club. That's business. Exactly. You and everybody else. So great. But how is that different? Where are you mm-hmm. going to concentrate? Be the best company for who? Be the best company how? Right? Like, mm-hmm. what's the things that actually differentiate you there from the vision? And then the next question is, okay, what are the big business challenges standing in the way of us getting there? If we want to grow, are we going to tackle new markets that have the same problem? Are we going to turn our company into a platform and open it up and allow people to transact on it. You know, what's what's the big push that's going to get you to that next level of company vision? And then you ask, all right, what are the problems I can solve for my customer to help us reach those business objectives? What are the big things that they need that will produce value? And then finally, that's what your teams can go experiment around. But they all have to be aligned, you know, up and down towards that. Like there should be a whole Every time you like say something like, okay, we're experimenting. Why? That should be the next layer of strategy all the way up the chain. So that you can go up and mm-hmm. down and across and everything actually makes sense. It's like anybody should be able to look at what they're doing and see like the breadcrumbs up to the North Star, basically. Yes, exactly. Once you've got these four things, right? You know, the vision, the challenge, the the target condition for the customers, and then you know the reality of where we are today, it seems like that's kind of I think what you're saying is like that's sort of the table stakes now that really sets teams up to be able to experiment in a really creative way to use, you know, the product kata, for example. Am I getting that right? Yes, yes. We define like four levels of product strategy and it's built off of um, what you were mentioning, which is the Toyota Kata framework. Toyota Kata uh, was implemented by Toyota, obviously, <laughs> for their continuous <laughs> improvement cycles and do really figure out how do we reach our next goals. And what it does is it starts by figuring out, okay, where are we going? What's the vision of what we want to achieve? Then understanding what are the challenges standing in our way of achieving that vision and then setting a next goal to tackle that challenge and then experimenting your way into that. And we apply this to product strategy because it's very similar to how businesses need to approach what they're building and why. So it's a framework that sets it up. And we call like the business level challenge um, a strategic intent. So the leaders are responsible for setting that. And what that really is, is a business challenge that's lofty, that really affects everybody in the company to set the terms of how you're going to reach that vision. So that might look like, you know, if you're a SaaS company and you are building, let's say, software for doctors, you're like, okay, maybe I was looking at primary care doctors, but I want to expand into hospitals. Like that, that's mm-hmm. an expansion thing that affects mm-hmm. your products, it affects your sales, it affects your marketing, everything. So you're aligning around like, where do we want to go as a company to grow? How do we want to be there? And then you're breaking that down into what does that mean for product, product development and product management? Mm-hmm. All right. So if we want to go into hospitals, what do we have to build or what do we have to do to our current products to be able to service hospitals? Right. What are the problems that hospitals have? It's like, oh, well, they have to do cardiology. So doctors don't have sure. cardiology segments on their platform. Like, how do we, how do we build that well? Like, what's the problem with the current cardiology stuff? Is it hard to use? Is it easy to use? What's going on there? So we're mm-hmm. asking ourselves these questions and filling in those gaps and then aligning the teams around actually getting there. And so I want to talk a little bit now about how you actually do this, right? Because mm-hmm. this is one of those things that we can see. I think most people could probably see how important it is. But I think you probably deal with this question a lot. But it's a question that has honestly stumped me. Why don't people do the things that are good for them? right? Yeah. And by the same extent, like, why don't companies do the mm-hmm. things that are good for them? And I'm curious, like, you've been in swimming in those waters. What do you see there? Yeah, this is hard. And I think that's why. Because 
it, to do the work to create a strategy is not easy. And it takes a lot of time and especially takes a lot of time from leaders. And mm. if they're spending their time on that, then sometimes, you know, they're not as visible in the organization because they're doing research. They are sometimes not micromanaging people as much and they see that <laughs> as their job, right? It's, it's like, so I think there's two reasons why you see people not do this work, even though they should, right? This is critical to companies. One is that sometimes organizations have leaders that don't know how to do this work. And you see that happen mm. a lot. You see this work happen in companies all the time who have experienced chief product officers, have a team that knows what they're doing. Like they are setting these strategies. Like that work mm -hmm. is happening. So if you look sure. at companies that have a lot of people who know how to do product management, they're setting these strategies. So they're they're not the they're not the cases where this isn't happening. Or mm -hmm. what we saw with a lot of growth stage companies that we worked with is that you could be a CEO who's really, really good at launching your product, growing it to the first stage of growth. So you got a single mm -hmm. product line. Now you're starting to really differentiate yourself into multiple product lines. You have to figure out what's my next phase of growth. And that might not be your expertise as a CEO. And also mm -hmm. as a CEO at that phase of your company, you're probably making a lot of money. You scaled. You got to do a lot more things. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you're probably not doing the work because you don't have time to do that work. And now it's time to hi hire a product leader. So... That happens a lot in smaller companies. They're not doing that work because they just don't have time or it's not the expertise of the CEO and they need to hire a product leader. That's a really good indication that, okay, it's time to get my chief product officer in, VP of product, whatever phase you're at. That probably happens, right? Is a, is it as maybe a start? It's going from like a startup to a yeah. scale up. Exactly. Where it's like all of a sudden the wheels are coming off the bus where what's, what's the phrase? Like you're out skiing, you're out leaning your skis or yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know that phrase, but there's a phrase about from skiing like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like thinking I got too long of skis going on down a hill going really fast. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's like I'm leaning too far. Whatever. You get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely that. It's, and you start to characterize those companies by different traits, right? Where you're expanding from one product line into two product lines, or you're expanding geographically, or yeah. you have significant churn and you have to reevaluate your product because, you know, you hit this, this growth point. So something major is happening where you have to reevaluate your strategy or, or figure out how to grow more. And that's when usually you're transitioning from startup to scale up and you need a product leader in there to help. Now, then there's all these big companies where you're going, okay, why aren't they doing it? They have a million people. They have a whole product team set up. That situation is usually those companies um, haven't done product management before. So they don't actually know how to do this work. They don't know how to do the product mm -hmm. strategy work that it takes. And there's a lot of leaders who don't know that that's their job, right? They're like, oh, my mm -hmm. job is to do strategy, but they don't understand what that means. And they haven't been trained mm -hmm. on it before. And a lot of companies that go through product management transformations, right? Especially your your banks or your people who are not digitally native, they're usually bringing uh, yes, the, the other digital parts. transformation. Yeah, transformation people. <laughs> air quotes. Oh, there's a lot of air quotes happening here. Listen, yeah, lots of air quotes. <laughs> so those those places you're bringing leaders in from other parts of the organization, but they've never done this role before. Like being a VP of product when you've been like a VP of deposit accounts for like the longest time is very, very different. Like that's not, yeah. that's not the same role. And yet uh, a lot of companies just take the managers and you know, they go, okay, cool. You, you run product now. So yeah. they, they don't know how to do it. They don't, they've never they learned. They make it report it. up so to like right. a CIO who thinks about stuff purely as a cost-based framework, like a cost-based mindset of, of minimizing yeah. that as opposed to like, oh, this is the fundamental investment that's going to drive well, kind of everything. Yeah. And, and product is a growth function at the end of the day. Like that's why you're, you're really getting into it. And a lot of those companies see product more as a way to save money or a cost function. Mm. You definitely get that. That's, that's one reason to implement software, but it's not the only reason. You know, if you look at 
I was just doing a training for a bank and I, I was, we were thinking through product strategies and how do they help and differentiate it. And if you look at the software strategies and the way that product management helps people who really grok it, you can see interesting ways that it adds value. So for example, I really like what Capital One did with some of their product stuff that you've seen if you've... I'm like, I've been a Capital One credit card holder forever. And okay. what they so do? I've seen it come out over the ways. And I think what they do in their credit card division is amazing. But one of the things that they did saved cost. And what they did is they implemented a way to get smart on whether people travel or not. So you never had to notify them if you're traveling, right? So mm. it's cost. You don't have to call up customer service. You don't have to put it in manually. But it also mm-hmm. increases so much customer value because you're like, now I have peace of mind where I don't have to worry about my credit card being shut off on me. And I travel mm-hmm. all the time to go to like workshops and stuff. So this is a huge issue. Oh, yeah. But now I've got peace of mind. Right. So there's so much customer value on that side. That's like a huge growth opportunity. Like, why wouldn't I go with a credit card company that allows me to do things so seamlessly that allows me to just, you know, exist and not worry about being cut off and yet still saves them probably a lot of money at the end of the day. So we tend to always be like, Oh, it's just, you know, product just has to make things easier. And it's just got to be like, uh, you know, a cost factor where we can streamline it. We can automate things. And it's like, that's not it at the end of the day. You, there's opportunities to, to learn from your customers, to use that data and then help surface up better opportunities for them, better ways to actually increase value. Yeah, no, that's, that's so interesting. And, and, you know, for the listener, we were doing the air quotes thing around the digital transformation because it's so common. It's, it's kind of trite at this point. And honestly, the thing I often, I find myself and I don't like this, but it's just what I notice happening is I find myself getting more and more skeptical whenever I hear that. And Sort of unfortunately, now my default has shifted to like when I hear that, I kind of don't believe it. How do you know? Can you know from the outside, like whether this desire to become a product led organization is sincere? How do you, how do you tell so that you don't waste your time? It's a really good question. I haven't quite figured it out yet, <laughs> honestly, <laughs> but I'm, I'm working on it. I think I'm learning, but I can't tell immediately. I think my biggest, my biggest thing that I look for is. Is the CEO invested enough in this where they see it as their job to do it? Hmm. And that's a big one because I see a lot of CEOs. I talk to CEOs all day and they bring me in and they go, okay, I want this digital transformation. I'm going to do it. But this is this person's job over here. And Hmm. they don't contribute to the the strategy. They don't work on setting the vision. They don't work on setting like those things. They don't work on wrangling the team together and pulling them all in on it. And I don't think you can have a successful transformation of any company in any way without having the top leader bought into it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's it. Everybody sees a digital transformation as somebody else's job. And they don't see it as this is a different way of working for our entire company. And we all have to be yeah. aligned and we all have to participate in the strategy and we all have to get it. Sometimes everybody's just like, hey, that is happening in IT and that's it. But I do yeah. work with some leadership teams where Everybody shows up to the product strategy workshop and they look through it and they go, okay, yeah, we're all going to do this. And to me, mm. those are the best ones, right? When I, when I do a product strategy workshop, workshop with an executive team and the CEO doesn't show up, like that's signaling to Ooh, me that this is look. important to them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The other, the other most common answer, I've asked a few people this question now, and the other most common answer is they just say pain. I just look for pain. Like they got to be hurting and hurting pretty bad usually. Yeah. And you know what? I have also seen people hurt really bad and organizations hurt really bad. And I've invested in a lot of time in trying to fix it. And it still comes down to the CEO because the CEO wasn't bought in. They will let the pain go. I've seen, like, I've worked with companies that were on the brink of like failure trying to use digital transformation as like a last stitch effort. 
you know, yeah. to get there. Hail Mary. And, uh, you know, by then it's too late, honestly. Like, it's really hard to come back from there. So that's one thing. And so, like, it's not going to be the thing that saves you. I think, I, I think also, if you don't see it as your job, it's definitely not going to save you as a CEO of this organization. Mm. So that's the only fail-proof way I have, I've come to be able to determine it. Because I've actually come into organizations. I've met with the CEO like a million times. They bring me in. And then as soon as I'm in, never see them again. Right? They They're like, oh, this is your job to go fix it. And that is mm-hmm. when I know it's not really going to work. It's not really going to take hold. But the ones that I have worked with where the CEO, like I've worked with some really great companies where the CEO is on the on the phone every day or, you know, at least once a week, just like, what's going on? How are we working on that? What do I need to do? What do you need from me? Do you need me to write a memo? Do you need me to do this? And when they do it, it works beautifully. Like everything mm. comes together. And when they're not in touch with it, it does not work. So that to me is a big thing. Like how invested is the the leadership team and especially the top leader in making this happen? Do they see it as a priority for themselves or do they see it as somebody else's problem? Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. You know, related to that, we're, we're talking a little bit about this, basically about buyer's remorse. So I, I've actually had quite a few folks, uh, quite a few product folks in the audience privately message me with questions that basically all come down to this, this idea of buyer's remorse of, you know, they, they took a job somewhere in a product role and it looked good. It sounded good. All these things. And they got in and it was exactly what you described a few minutes ago where they're like, wait a minute. Like I, I'm not allowed to work the way that we as a product community in a, in a global sense have basically figured out as best we know we should be working. And I'm curious, do you have any advice for people? Uh, for, you know, let's say someone is, is taking, is interviewing for a role. How can they figure out? Before taking the job, that it actually that they're going to be allowed to work, in, you know, they're going to be empowered to work the ways we know that they should. That they're going to have the context they need. That it's not going to be window dressing. Yeah, that has actually happened to me. So <laughs> I will say, Ouch. like, it's happened to me as well. I get it. <laughs> I've been there. Yeah. It's happened to me. Exactly. Consulting. It's happened to me full time. Like, yeah, that's the thing. I feel like when you go through the interviews, they'll sell you on whatever just to get you in the door. So mm-hmm. what I advise and what I do when I before I take on clients as well is ask them very tactical questions to evaluate if they're actually doing the behaviors or if they're just paying lip service to what they would like to do. So my suggestion would be to start with questions like, oh, can you tell me about like the last product that you built? Like how did everybody work together? Did you talk to customers? Who were they? You know, what did you do to actually build it? Like try to dive into those so that you can say, I really want to understand what my, you know, my day-to-day, my week to week is going to look like. Can you tell me about the last features and products that you shipped, like how'd you start? Where did the idea come from? All that stuff. And that's good because you're showing interest in the products and services that those people are building and you're trying to just get an understanding of how you work as a team. I've also asked questions like, what are your goals or KPIs? What do they look like? What's your goals? Right to the interviewers, um, ask everybody about that. I would ask the other product managers what it's like as well. So even if people who might not be in the interviewing, if you can ask them, say like, can I talk to another product manager on the team? I just want to like, if I'm going to have lunch with them or something, just ask them about how they build things. So Mm -hmm. a lot of people, I I feel like in the interviews, spend time being like, what's the culture like? Do you get vacation days and stuff like that? Mm -hmm. But ask them about what their projects are. So what are you working on right now? How did that start? How'd you get given that project? What are the goals for that project? Who do you work with on a daily basis? How'd you get matched with that team? When was the last time you talked to customers? What kind of customers? Mm-hmm. How do you get in touch with those customers, by the way? Like, 
just try to try to dig into what are they actually doing? Because people will be truthful and they'll tell you exactly what they're doing. But if you ask them theoretically, like, hey, do you experiment? Do you talk to customers? They're going to be like, oh, of course we do. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's funny. It's it's actually, uh, it just occurs to me listening to you. It's the same thing that we do with customer interviews, mm-hmm. right? We don't ask them to speculate about their future selves. We ask them to tell us about their actual past behavior. Yep. And it's just applying this exact same tool to our own job interviews, basically. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Another one that I've heard is, is, you know, understanding that, like, I, I just had Marty Kagan on the show and, and we were talking about his new book. You know, he has a huge section in there about like coaching and the importance of that. And one of the things he said, I asked him a similar question. He's like, yeah, you should find out what's it like to work for that manager? Like, mm. how do you get coaching? How often do you get coaching? What kind of coaching? Like, what's that like? You know, all, yeah. all those things like that. Or, or how was the, um, another one I've, I've, I've heard that I, I like is similar to your, your point about KPIs and goals. Like, well, how did, you know, how did your current goals get set? Right. Yeah. And then you can find out like, Oh, are these just being like dictated from on high or what's going on here? Yep. yep. So, and you know, I think too, like asking people who report into that manager, not necessarily the manager themselves. Right. Cause the manager might be yeah. like, yeah, I coach people all the time. And then you yeah, have yeah, yeah, direct yeah. reports and they're like, Oh, I have a meeting once a month with my manager. It's like, okay, that doesn't sound like coaching. Yeah. How long is that meeting? What do you do? Hmm, okay. <laughs> so yeah, it's almost it's like, like uh, a yeah, <laughs> Exactly. It's like, what do you talk about? So yeah, no, it's super helpful. I know there's, there's a few people in the audience. You know who you are. There, there you go. That's, that one's just for you all. (laughs) So let's pop back up a level to talking about strategy. Cause I think that's really, as you said, that's, I, I, my own explorations have also led me there to thinking a lot more about that of like, Oh, that's this missing critical piece. And there's a book I've heard you talk about that I think I have to go read now, which I believe is the art of action. Yeah. Talk to me about that. What what influence did that have on you? Because I think it's actually from a military background, right? It is. So it was written by Stephen Bungay, and it's really about deploying strategy. And he uses the example of the military in there. But I thought it was fascinating. Like I, I'm reading this book, just nodding at all the things mm. he said is, are like signs of bad strategy. And I was like, "Yep, going through this, going through this, going through this." Right? Like as I'm reading it last week. So oh God. <laughs> that's why I became slightly obsessed with that book. Uh, and it's funny because mm. I gave it to the CEO of one of the companies I was at while I was reading it, being like. Hey, I kept telling him, I was like, you need a strategy, but I couldn't figure out how to convince him to do the work. And then mm. he likes books. So I gave him the book and I was like, see all of these things that it talks about. Like it does, it talks about when there's like lack of information or there's lack of data, it causes uh, leaders to react in certain ways. So like if there's lack of information, the leaders are going to demand more information and then they demand more information. And then people think you're micromanaging them and it turns into this flywheel. Mm. Right. Mm. And it's usually because there is no system set up to get that information, to deploy that strategy, to communicate what people are working on. There's no robust framework set up for it. So it, it attributes to bad behaviors in leaders, especially in, in organizations to really react that way. I'm pulling up the flywheel. So I remember exactly what it looks like as I talk sure. about it. So like they talk about these, these different gaps. So there's like the knowledge gap where there's a disconnect between the outcomes and the plans, right? And that's mm. specific, you know, to what strategy is. So what, you know, what is the plan to actually build? What are we trying to achieve? If they're disconnected or if people don't understand it, what happens is leaders demand more detailed information. And that means, you know, they're requesting, they're like, tell me what you're going to do. Tell me what you're going to do. And they're trying to connect. Tell me, the what roadmap. Tell me what's in the roadmap for, for two, two, three years from now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then um, it, there's a disconnect between a plans and actions. There's an alignment gap. So what do they do? Mm-hmm. They give you more detailed instructions. So they're like, go do this. And it becomes very micromanaging. And then mm-hmm. if there's a gap between actions and outcomes, it's the effects gap, right? Okay, you did all these things, but I can't actually measure it, which is what we were talking about with product strategy before. Mm-hmm. You know, If it's not aligned, you're not going to see the outcomes. 
And then what do they do when they see the effects gap? They do, they ask for more detailed uh, information and they get tighter controls. So they get very prescriptive about what people mm-hmm. should be doing. And that's where you get into micromanagement. So it's all about like alignment. So if you don't have alignment between the outcomes and the plans to achieve those outcomes and the actions of the teams that can produce those outcomes, that's when you get a bunch of managers who are like on your back going, okay, build this feature tomorrow. And that's the part that made me so excited about this when I was thinking about strategy because I was watching it happen in an organization where the CEO was literally like, I want to read everybody's tickets in JIRA. And I was like, you have 5,000 people entering tickets in JIRA into the system. You're going to read how many tickets? And also, you're not going to understand what they mean. So like, like, no, right? But he was asking for more information, right? Like that wasn't the information he needed. But he didn't know where to go to get the information. So what he did was ask for the only thing he knew about, which was Jira tickets. But that's not going to help him, right? So mm-hmm. that's a desperation play. Yeah. So we like we went he went through Jira tickets for like four hours and came back in and he was like, Yeah, I don't understand what's going on. I'm like, Yeah, because that's not the thing that you need. So like <laughs> let's work on let's work on your strategy so that uh, we can bubble up what's happening there. And then we went to all the teams and we said, like, okay. We have to define the initiative that you're actually working towards in a way that talks about the outcomes. And then we rewrote everything there. We mapped that out. And he was like, oh, okay, now I understand mm. how that's going to get me more revenue or entering this market or whatnot. And it connected it. And it, you know, then he stopped asking. So we had to implement that cadence and that way of communicating about the strategy so that he got the information he needed so that he knew people were aligned to what he was trying to achieve and they were working towards the right thing. You look at doing a, a real product strategy, for, especially for the first time. It's a significant undertaking, right? This can take months to do this well. Yes. My my question is that if someone can get themselves signed up for doing it the first time, does it get easier over time? Like, is it easier uh, yes. once you have one? Yes, yes, because you don't have to do it from scratch. Like, imagine it's going to take a company like what six months to actually implement a great product strategy, top to bottom. Let's say that six six months if you're smaller, maybe a year if you're big and slow and not really doing stuff well or don't have the right data. Now. If you build the infrastructure to keep refreshing that data, the systems to get that data, to get the different information from users, product strategy should take you like a couple weeks to do because you'll have the information that you need, right? So it, it, it's not just about setting the strategy. It's about setting the, the governance, the product operations and stuff around getting the information that you need to do strategy. So one of the biggest things that we used to do with clients um, consulting is putting together like the the dashboards for product operations, especially for the C-level executives that were things like looking at the revenue and cost per product or the segment of the market per product or the churn per product and things that like really broke it down in a way where you can look at it as you evaluate your strategy and be like, wow, why are we investing 90% more in product A versus product B when product B has much more revenue potential than product A? Right. Like if you can't mm-hmm. make those decisions, you can't set strategy. It's going to take a longer, longer to do. So once you get one, also you shouldn't be changing it immediately. So mm-hmm. you're going to have that for a while, but you should be reflecting on it and updating it and gathering the information for the next steps. Got it. Perfect. It just seems to me that like, oh, wow, what you're describing seems to be sort of maybe the actual root cause of everyone's favorite word to hate, which is roadmaps, <laughs> right? Every, like all the frustrations in the fact that. Everybody, it's seemingly in the enterprise, everybody confuses roadmaps and plans, right? One is a a communications document of strategic intent, and one is like, what are we doing in X amount of time? And it seems like that what you're describing might actually be what's at the root of that. Yes. Yeah. So the, when we think about, you know, aligning these different pieces, 
word maps really connect like so to re- go over again the four layers that I was talking about right we've got product visions then we got strategic intents at our business level then we got product initiatives which are about how do we manifest this product portfolio to solve bigger problems and then we've got options which are solutions that the teams go after roadmaps should first of all there's not there shouldn't just be one roadmap for a company there's usually different levels of roadmaps so in an executive team what I want to be seeing is how do my strategic intents map to the initiatives? So that's what the CEO can understand. That's what a CPO could understand. That's the higher level. Here's the big things that we're doing that will get me to my big goals. So you need a roadmap for that. And then at a team level or a product level, you need the to map the initiatives back to the options, right? The solutions that you're actually building, the projects you break down for that. So that's mm-hmm. a roadmap on the team level. So you have to make sure you're communicating the right level of information for the different team members. And that is something where I see people struggle. Sometimes they're giving too detailed information to CEOs and they check out. You know, mm. a lot of them say, Oh, I want to see a roadmap. But if you start talking to them at a level where it's like, Hey, we're going to implement this API tomorrow and here's where we're getting mm-hmm. held up. There's some bugs on this area we have to re-platform. It's like snooze fest for them. They're like, I don't know what any of that means. I don't care. <laughs> like, cool. Yeah, and that's, that's why, yeah, that's why they're like tuning out because you're not talking to them in the right way. But if you stay instead, like, okay. You know, one of our strategic intents is to open up our platform. In order to do that, we have to really figure out how to build this bundle of APIs that can target this customer subset. That's what we're working on here. We believe that we'll have a first version in market in three months. Okay, now I understand what you're saying. Like now we, okay, in three months, I believe we can go target our first people and be on the first step to opening up our platform. Yeah, let's talk to me a little bit about product ops, product operations, which seems to be, as I understand it now, just from the stuff you sent me before we talked kind of the missing or the key enabling piece that makes a good, a real strategy possible. How do we do that? So I kind of stumbled into product operations when I was scaling product management across an organization of 5,000 people. We had 365 product teams, something like that. And it came to a point where we were like, we had 365 product managers, about 360 teams, something like that. And you know, everybody was doing a roadmap different. The information was really hard to get to inform strategy. Mm-hmm. We didn't really have a strategy when I started. And we started to see that even training the teams in the tactics, getting a strategy in place, if you didn't have a way to constantly get the data to refresh it, have a way for the product managers to concentrate on product management and not like infrastructure problems or anything like that, it wasn't really scalable. You couldn't scale your teams. So uh, mm-hmm. we introduced there a concept of product operations. And what we did was we had we we had them in charge of cadences for meetings to review things like roadmaps, demos, strategy review with exec teams. So we like implemented these different cadences for hey, mm-hmm. when this is the meeting that happens quarterly between the executives and the product leaders to understand the initiatives to strategic intents and we make decisions there on a high level. This is the meetings that happen between the product managers and their product leaders to communicate their roadmaps and what's happening more tactically so that they can start to anticipate what to bring to the executive leadership meeting. This is where we set strategy. We had people in place that helped pull together data and insights for the product mm-hmm. managers so that they didn't have to do the legwork to get it all out of databases. So they were in charge of monitoring things like amplitude and creating dashboards and um, synthesizing customer information that was coming in from uh, customer support or sales or anything like that and making sure those got back to the team in a way... Not that prescriptive, like, here's what you have to go build, but just useful. Like, okay, here's themes around stuff that you're interested in. And here's the customers so that you can go contact them if you have to. 
so we had like the data, we had the reporting, we had the cadence people, and then we had the, oh, we also streamlined customer research and like experimentation and product ops. So a lot of B2B companies or large enterprises have issues with trying to get the right people into test or find the right customers to show things to. Mm-hmm. And what we did was set up like a cadence that one, we defined like what stages of products were. So things like experimental products that may not, may not go live. We told sales, mm-hmm. like, you cannot sell that. But we had mm-hmm. like a user research group that had people opted in to do experiments with us that we contact and do experiments with. We mm-hmm. had beta testers as well. So we like um, had a group of people that we could contact and we had a database of those people. We also said when we contacted them so that we didn't hound them all the time. But then this mm-hmm. also put into place a system for sales to know, understand like what not to sell and what was ready to be sold and like what was coming mm-hmm. down the pipeline in a way where we didn't have to be like, you can't talk about that yet because they understood what the framework was. Gotcha. Yeah, it seems like it's, to put it in kind of a meta way, it seems like it's almost like this so this engine you're creating that's an engine for insight. Yeah. Exactly. And then that, those insights become your sort of raw material for actually doing a real strategy. Exactly. It feeds the insights and it also provides governance so that everybody's working in a standardized way, but not necessarily like the exact same way. What I think about is you should standardize things that are important across teams. So like roadmaps, you want a common way to do that. But you yeah. know, running a meeting with your development team on a day-to-day basis, that doesn't really affect other people. So run it the way you want. Like You don't have to standardize everything. But you should standardize mm-hmm. things that make it possible for people to move team to team or that other people in the organization have to understand for you to do your job well. Mm, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I want to talk a little bit now, you know, you sent me a great talk and we're going to link to this in the show, all the stuff in the show notes for the listener, but there's a fantastic talk you, you sent me called, or that you did recently called The Product of You. Yeah. And you talked a lot about sort of the trajectory or the career path for, for product people that I think for many people actually has, was never spelled out before. Like when I saw that, I was like, oh, wow, okay, this makes sense. I can see how these, these sort of, I can see the different rungs on the ladder, so to speak. And I'm, you know, I, one of the things I really appreciated about it was you kind of described some of the different foundational skills that people need to get really good at if they want to, you know, depending on where they want to go. You've identified some goals and now I'm thinking about, okay, cool. How do we use the best of what you've identified with the best of like learning theory to help people actually level up in these ways? Yeah. I get a lot of questions about how do I move from my individual contributor role into a leader role? And they're always Mm. segued with, I don't have time to do all the things that I'm capable of and I don't have time to do the strategy work. Mm-hmm. My answer honestly is like, you got to find time and make it. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't care what's on your plate and it kind of sounds terrible to say that, but if you can't practice it, the first role of being a leader is figuring out like how to get stuff off your plate and get it onto <laughs> other people's plates or, or figure out what you can streamline or automate so you can free up your time to do the most important work. And I mean, you know, it's things that I deal with every day where I'm like, I could respond to all of our customer support emails, or I could have somebody else respond to the customer support emails, right? Because I have to figure out what the strategy is and where we're going to go or what we're going to do. And I think a lot of times we get bogged down by the day-to-day busyness of things. Mm -hmm. And we don't set set aside that time for the deliberate practice of doing the work that we need to do to get better. So you have to try it, right? Like you have to try things. And even if you're not specifically given the opportunity in your organization, there is so much room I see where leaders are just waiting for product managers to step up and own Mm. something. So I get all these product managers who are like, Hey, 
I don't have the time to do strategy. And all these leaders who are like, I don't have the time to do strategy. Why can't my team do it? And you're like, Mm. cool. So if you set apart some of that time to actually work through it, get something and put it in front of them, it would probably blow their minds. Like Mm. you don't have to be... I, I try to say like, don't wait for permission to do things. And I know a lot of people get uncomfortable with that, but I have... I think I've lived my my entire life by not waiting for permission for somebody to say like, hey, you're allowed to do that. And that's mm. what's gotten me to where I am. So in in specifically in places, like I was told I couldn't talk to customers. I was told like I couldn't experiment. And I did it anyway. Like I just went around and I apologized for it later. I feel like I've lived most of my career by not waiting for permission for people to tell me I could do things, right? Like I, mm. I did end up in specific organizations where I was told I'm not allowed to experiment. I'm not allowed to do MVPs. I'm not allowed to talk to customers. I'm mm-hmm. figuring out ways to get the information I need and do that anyway. So like one company that I was at was like, you can't talk to customers. So I went to the sales team and I was like, can I come with you to talk to customers? And they were like, okay. Um, so <laughs> I rode along with them. And then they were like, oh, she's chill. She can go talk to people afterwards, right? Like, like you just have to kind of figure out how to get your job done. It's annoying. It's not comfortable. And I say, if you don't want to do that, then go to another place where you can do your job. But if you do want to get ahead, especially into leadership roles and do strategic work and stuff like that, you have to take the opportunity in some places to just do it and show people what you can do and try to get the other stuff off your plate by either enabling your team. Uh, One of the biggest things I see from product managers who complain that they don't have enough time is that they're not setting the context with their team that they need to, to Mm. make sure that they know how to make uh, strategic decisions when they're not around. Like imagine if you went away for two weeks, is your team not going to do anything? No. So like, how do you lay the picture out for them about where you want to go, build that context so that they can make decisions? And then Mm. you put some of that work onto them. And then how do you get out of some of the busy work that you don't really need to do? Like, do you have to respond to like every single email that you possibly get? Can some things wait? How do you create space? It's that type of discipline that you need in order to free yourself up to do what you're actually capable of. But if you can't, make that space, it doesn't matter because you'll never make that space at a leadership level either. You will find yeah. ways to keep yourself busy. So that's my big thing is like, just figure out like there's there's all these tips and tricks about like how to free up space to do things. And I think the biggest thing is looking at what's important for you to do versus what can you give to other people or enable your team to do. Not micromanage everything and then free up yourself to go and just try something and put it in front of your boss. Yeah, it's funny. It brings it back around that concept you, you mentioned in your book, the cost of delay, right? And it's like, this is one of those, you know, important, but not that urgent things yeah. that is so easy to ignore. So talk to me really quick about that, about what does that look like? And there, there's sort of two pieces I'd love you to address. First, we've got to get stuff off our plate. And it seems like the key thing there is setting that context. So how does a product manager who's trying to free up some time do a good job setting that context for the team so they can actually get a little space back to go do some forward looking work? Yeah, it's really interesting. So this is something I saw as I was training product managers, product managers who adopt agile and learn product management through a product owner framework and don't go to like Jeff Patton's workshop or anything. Don't learn this concept of building a a vision for the product and and what you're actually going to build ahead of time. So they just focus Mm -hmm. on like a backlog of a list of requests Mm -hmm. and they take it off. So there is nothing wrapping that backlog around a meaningful goal. Mm -hmm. So you need to take a step back first at that lowest level and just say, what are we trying to produce here? Like, what's the option? What's the solution? How do how do I build context for my team about that? And you can do story mapping. You can write a little memo about it. You can put together at organizations where we did big parts of this. We would put together like this North Star document about where we're going and some UX wireframes and stuff and design and product would work on it together to build the context about what you're doing. And then mm-hmm. when the developers see it, 
And I also would include, include them in some of the working sessions along the way. But when they see it, they're like, okay, I understand what we're building now. I don't need to bug you every single day with 7,000 questions because it's not reactive. It's like, I get it. It's strategic. It's going that way. So I think that's the biggest thing that you can do. Also, as a leader, I think building that context for your teams, your product managers is huge. So the best directors and VP of products I've seen, they build teams around themselves to help get that done. So they'll, they'll pull in product managers, they'll pull in data scientists, they'll pull in a bunch of people to help them build context about the direction that they're going in, the strategy that they're setting, the vision for the product. And they spend a lot of time communicating it to their teams when it's new and when it's fresh. And mm-hmm. it's just over and over, repetition, repetition, until everybody internalizes it. And then they never have to worry about it again. Mm, yeah, I love that. So let's talk then about, let's say you have a product manager who just did that. Good mm-hmm. job, product manager. And now they're saying, okay, I want to actually take Melissa's advice and practice doing some of that higher level strategy. I'm sure you see this a lot, especially in your work as like an interim CPO of, you know, going from no strategy to a strategy. So what would you, how would you advise them to start doing that if they really don't have a background in it? Yeah, the first thing I, I would do is talk to your boss about if there is a strategy. So I have situations where there is a strategy, it's stuck in somebody's head and they're not clearly communicating it. Mm-hmm. And in that case, you can go try to understand what success looks like for them. Try to fill in the pieces. You're probably not going to get all of the pieces. And then your next step would be to fill them in yourself, right? Go do the work to help fill it in. But the first thing is to gather as much information as you can from your boss or from your executives and figure out what is it that we're trying to achieve here and start to map that out. If you can't get all the pieces, that's your opportunity to go fill them in. So that's what I would say was the first part of strategy. Second part is if there is no strategy, if there are no pieces in it, that's your opportunity to start thinking differentiated. Be like, well, what's our goal as a company? Are we trying to increase revenue? Are we reducing costs? Like, What's our biggest business challenges right now? And that's your opportunity to figure out how do you differentiate against customers? How do you um, solve some of those problems through your own product? And I, I wouldn't go crazy. like I wouldn't build a strategy for the entire company. But you can build a strategy for your product or your surrounding areas. And then just be like, Hey, you know, I want to I talk to you about this concept to your boss and be like, I was playing around with it. I wouldn't super polish it. I would like you keep it rough, keep it rough, right? And just be like, I'm just trying to figure out where there is potential for my product. And this is what I put together. Can I discuss it with you? And maybe we can see if I'm on the right track or if you have any inputs for me. And I keep it at that level. And then you gauge the reaction, right? Is the reaction like, sweet, yes, this is a lot of stuff that we've been missing or a lot of research that's been missing. This is fantastic. Let's flush it out together. Or are they like, oh no, this is completely off base. It's a different direction. Mm. And in that case, you go, okay, how? How is it a different direction? What am I missing here? I probably just don't have all the information. Can you can you help fill me in? And mm. maybe that's an ego thing, or maybe there you are missing information. But either way, it's going to let you see some of the reaction, but you also had the opportunity to build some of the strategy, whether you want to be there or not. <laughs> yeah, you'll, you'll learn a lot in those reactions about, hmm, what do I think about this place for real? Yeah. So I'm curious, as people take that on, and, and I know a lot of folks in the audience are going to accept that challenge, which is great. I think for a lot of people, they, they are lacking an example of what, you know, good looks like. Is there an example you would point people to that says, you know, hey, if you're taking a crack at your first strategy, just, just for your product line, not for the whole business, right? Like you just talked about. Is there an example you would point people to to say, hey, here's, here's a pretty good example that shows you what good looks like? Yeah, I think Gib Biddle has written a lot on strategy that gives you some good frameworks to start thinking through it. I think like the way that I was thinking through this the other day, but like I think the way that Gib Approach to strategy is he's got different frameworks that have worked at previous companies that you can implement and take and start to use yourself. And I think that's a pretty good place to start if you, if you don't know where to go. 
my strategic framework top to bottom is less prescriptive about like, here's the different ways companies do strategy. Like it's not going to tell you like how Netflix does strategy. It's just more about aligning it and the types of things that should be at each level, but you'd have to pick one of those strategies to fill in. So I think Mm -hmm. if you're starting, there's a lot of um, stuff out there like by Gib or some other people about the different ways that companies do strategy. And I would look at that because there's patterns. Like the way that one company expands into new markets, it's a, a strategy pattern that you can pick up and try to implement yourself. On our blog, we have a bunch of stuff about different strategies that SaaS companies can do at productslabs.com. That's where the blog is. And we have 16 strategies for growth. So if I want to increase my TAM, I could expand geographically. I could expand into different different market lines with different problems or different uh, persona lines. So there's all these different strategies. And I'd encourage you to like look at those and say, what could actually work for my company? And what are my goals in our organization? And can I start to think through how this would actually manifest? Yeah, fantastic. And I love, highly, highly want to second the recommendation for Gibbs strategy series. He's got some great models in there from DHM to Glee to Gem. And we'll link to all the stuff in the show notes. It's excellent. So I want to go ahead and start to close out now with a couple of rapid fire questions. Short questions. Your answers don't have to be just, they're just fun for riffing. And the first one is, you know, what is a quote or a saying that's important to you, you know, that you return to often? And what about it speaks to you? Ooh, does it have to be like, Product management, really? No, no, no. No, anything, anything. Ooh, I guess like, I don't know, this year it's killing me. And there's one quote that I just keep playing in my mind, which is like, I don't know how to convince you that you should care about other people. That's like a really big one. And I think as we go into organizations and we're working, I'm working like internationally, I'm working with people who are going through a lot of stuff. I would encourage people to remember that. Like you should care about the people that you work with and and the other people in your life are the people that you don't even know and, and make sure that they're all right because we're all in this mm. together. That's beautiful. Yeah, thank you for that. And this is a bit of an odd one, but... And again, that doesn't have to just be product. What would you say is the thing you know best? Ooh, the thing that I know best? Fortunately, is product. I think my life is boring. <laughs> my boyfriend keeps telling me that I need to get hobbies that don't relate to work. And I'm just like, who has time for that? <laughs> I'm trying to, try to be a more well-rounded person. So when I think about this question, it's like, what's your secret sauce? What are you like really, really good at? What's your what's your like spidey sense? I think I'm really good at maybe not even just product, but like breaking down product and teaching it. So I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this for the last couple of years because I, I think you want to do things that you're really good at. And I think the one thing that I'm really good at or really know about is is the actual teaching component of it too. I don't know why. I have no idea where that came from. But I will say that's I I know how to break these things down and teach for some reason. Yeah, no, you you certainly have a, uh, a I was going to say a skill, but you have both a talent and a skill. You have a talent you've built on and honed into a skill of taking that which is complex and making it sort of simple, relatable, exactly. actionable. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's the thing. That's the thing that I just keep coming back to, and I, I that's the thing I like doing. So great. I think that yeah, it's, it's pretty it's good when you like keep doing things and they all align. <laughs> I've spent a lot of time thinking about that over the past year, and I'm like, oh. That is one thing that I can do. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And it's what's nice is, and I found this in my own explorations, is getting, spending the time to get more clear about those things, I find to be so freeing because we can figure out, like when you understand something like what you just said, you can apply that in any situation, any context. It doesn't, it, you know, that isn't just related to product. You can do that anywhere. Yeah. Um, which I find to be, it's like, oh, cool. I have a superpower. What is a small change you've made in recent memory that has had an outsized impact for you? It could be about anything like personal life could just be some hobby, anything. 
I have started to stop my workday a little bit earlier or like find some breathing time. So even when I have a million things to do, it's kind of terrible, but I think it's also because I'm like checked out at the end of the year. But <laughs> I've been <laughs> like, I'm just going to stop now and I'm going to walk away. And having that space, which I also don't feel like I've decompressed totally from this year. I mean, who has? But like having that space to think and to have clarity, I think is really important. I just remember when when I was starting off in product management, I had, a, I had a boss, his name was Chris. And I was like fighting with this. I was also a UX designer. So I was like fighting with the screen and I couldn't figure out what to do. And he came over and he was like, you've been like staring at the thing for five hours, go home. Just like, just go. I was like, it's two o'clock. And he's like, leave, come back tomorrow. Look at it then, go watch TV, take a walk, do something. Mm. He's like, you are in a creative industry and you're in a creative endeavor. And if you don't give yourself space to be bored or not think about it, you will never solve that problem. And that is something that I'm trying to take into 2021. I feel like I've spent a lot of my last couple of years just being busy and Mm. overpacking my agendas with to-dos instead of space to think. And I'm trying to give myself more space to think and really like religiously blocking my calendar for it. Yeah. No, I hear you. I hear you on that. So Melissa, first of all, thank you so much for being here today. I am such a fan of your work from your book to your talks, all of it. So really appreciate you spending some time. Thanks for having and me. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. So just in closing out, what would you like to leave the listener with? It's interesting because we talk about in product management, taking risks and trying things and experimenting. I would encourage you to do that with, with your own stuff, right? I, I try to treat everything I do as a little bit of an experiment to see if it works or not and then keep what sticks and get rid of what doesn't. And you can try that. You don't have to wait for product to try that. Try that in the way that you present to your leaders. Leaders Try that in the way that you interact with customers. Try that in the way that you um, create space for yourself to do things. Like Maybe just take an experimental mindset. Be, take a little bit of some calculated risks to put yourself out there and see what comes. I, I think taking a chance on a lot of stuff is, is a good way to approach, approach getting better at things. Awesome. Roll those dice, people. Awesome. Well, Melissa, thanks again for being here. Really, really appreciate having you. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was great. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. That helps us reach way more people and build this community up. For show notes, links to the resources and everything else we discussed, please go to enliven.fm. Feel free to reach out with questions, feedback, or just to say hello by emailing connect at enliven.fm. Be sure to subscribe and until next time, my friends, leave them better than you found them. We'll see you soon.